Well, good morning to you all, and I suppose I can still say Happy New Year, can't I? I think, yeah, yeah, Happy New Year. Um, at the turn of the year, as you're aware, it's customary to make resolutions. And as some of us were discussing at Home Group last Wednesday, many of us have broken ours already. And if, uh, if that's your experience as well, then I'd say never mind. Just start again. Because good habits are not formed, and bad habits are not broken overnight. So when our resolutions crash and burn after a few days, it might feel like the most abject of failures, but in fact it's the opposite. It's a short, measured period of unbridled success. Now that, actually, whether you like it or not, is a huge step up from simply not trying. When we get uh, back on the horse that threw us, or back on the wagon, or on the treadmill, or whatever it might be, uh, we might manage six days rather than five. And the time after that, it might be nine days rather than six. And that is how discipline works. Small beginnings. And as a church, too, I don't think it's a bad idea to make some resolutions at the start of a new year. And as we enter 2000 and, what is it, 2016 already uh, together, I'd like to suggest a New Year's resolution that we might want to make together as the Kingdom Vineyard. And for this, I wanted to take a look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5, starting at verse 17. You might want to turn there in your Bibles right now, or get your phone out and, and look it up, or whatever method you use. Although I understand Phil's going to get the words up on the, on the screen for us. Now, if you've ever studied 2 Corinthians in any detail, you will have noticed that it's impossible, and all the commentators agree with you, to pin down any one great theme. That is, unless you go for the Lucy Watts heckle from Christmas morning during my story, it's all about God. (laughs) Well, very wise, but it doesn't really narrow things down very much, does it? But she was on on the ball, yeah. Um, But though a unifying theme in 2 Corinthians does prove elusive, it's a book that is jam-packed with clear theology, vivid images, and a great deal of practical advice. So while this reading isn't specifically relevant to us because Kingdom Vineyard is just like the church at Corinth, I do think it has something to say to us, and in fact to any church. There are a number of passages that I might have uh, chosen to say the same sort of thing, but this one seems to key in particularly closely to what I believe God is calling us to right now as a church. And it has the added advantage as well of getting us to actually open to Corinthians, which is kind of the ugly sister of the two letters to the Corinthians, isn't it? No one ever really looks at it. Everyone loves one Corinthians and nobody loves two. Now, those of you who were uh, around at the time will probably remember a few years back when I preached from Matthew 10 on the subject of, uh, well, those words that the marine biologist says in the film Jaws, the first time he lays eyes on the shark. You're going to need a bigger boat. Do you remember that? The point of of, of that talk at that time was that we had to exert our energies to building up the church in various ways if we wanted to do the job we're called to do and produce the kind of fruit that God wants from us. It wasn't a time for just throwing ourselves recklessly into every single ministry opportunity that came along. It was a time to stand together and take the short-term strain for the sake of the long-term gain. And the good news today is that we do now have a bigger boat than we did four years ago. We meet in a better Sunday venue. We're settled into the vineyard center, 
and thanks to the hard work of Ian uh, and some others as well, we've made it pretty much ideal for our current purposes. Storehouse has grown enormously, both in size and in public profile. And I think as a church, we've grown in spiritual health, we've grown in, in confidence, in generosity, in our welcome, in leadership, in friendships, in willingness to serve each other in our communities, and in the gifts and fruit of the Holy Spirit. In fact, everywhere I look around the church, I see people stepping up to serve, to give, to pray, and to minister both inside the church and out. And as all this has happened, we've undoubtedly also grown in influence, in visibility, and in favor with our local community. In short, the boat of the church is no longer some rickety old tub held together with string and gaffer tape, but a proper seaworthy vessel. The question now, as we get ready to leave the harbor, is not, is it going to sink, but where are we headed? And in a nutshell, the answer is very simple. The answer is outward, out of the harbor. When Jesus called his very first disciples, he told, he told them he'd make them fishers of men. And we, as Christians today, are inheritors of the exact same calling. The church is many different things to us at different stages and times of our lives. But first and foremost, it's designed as a fishing boat, not a pleasure cruiser. And the great catch of fish that we're after is out there in the open sea somewhere, not inside the confines and safety of the harbour wall. Getting a bit croaky, lubricate the larynx. It is only water. And as many of you know, we've been living quite deliberately for the last two years in a period of what we call community development, community building. And that's just a phase of church life. And for the reasons that I just mentioned, the advantages that, we just, uh, that we've um, accrued, I think it's been very good for us. But as that phase comes to an end, we have to move on first to shaping our common vision together and then into addressing the agreed task that lies before us. When Carol and I first planted the church 11 years ago, And also at several other points along the way, we had to be highly focused, almost obsessively so, on building the church itself. But now that we're better established, we can safely broaden our vision. And in fact, it would be dangerous not to do so. Those who join us during our various boat building phases might be forgiven for thinking that we're a bunch of shipwrights. But we're not. We've always been fishermen. As the Kingdom Vineyard strapline puts it, our purpose from the start has always been helping people make connections with God. Now that we have our bigger boat, we can and should get on with it. So for us to turn outward a bit now and put out to sea is a change of emphasis, not a change of direction. But we need to be patient because I don't think the change will come about overnight like New Year's resolutions, it'll probably take place in a series of small but significant steps. So, at last, you will think, to today's passage, 2 Corinthians 5, beginning at verse 17. That's good, wasn't it? Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ 
reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Working together with him, then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, in a favorable time I listened to you, and in a day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Now, splitting this short passage into four parts, as is my habit, it seems to me to begin with a new creation and to end with a now salvation. And in between those two vital concepts, we find an outward ministry of reconciliation and an inward process of reconciliation to God. So number one, a new creation, verse 17. I suppose since the verse starts with a therefore, we should really look and see what it's. Yeah, you got it. But in fact, the reasoning goes back several steps, I think at least five stages in the preceding passage, the potential reasoning. And it's not immediately clear which part of the argument is supposed to lead us to this verse 17 conclusion. In my opinion... The most logical bit to put before our initial therefore in verse 17 is in fact not 16, but verses 14 to 15. One, that is Jesus, has died for all. Therefore all have died. And he died for all so that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised from the dead. And that seems to me to make most sense as a lead into, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Now, Paul was able to put that argument very briefly. Well, it sounds complex, as we said, because the Corinthians were already completely familiar with the great salvation message. That though sin inevitably results in death, Jesus has in fact died in our place. And the penalty of our sins has therefore been completely taken away. We are then legally dead as far as our sins are concerned. And the dead can't be punished, can they? So that's a good thing. It means our debt is paid in full. We don't have to lift a finger to pay it off. Yet though we're legally dead as regards punishment for wrongdoing, we find ourselves still living. In fact, we're more alive than ever because Jesus not only died for us, but was also raised from the dead for us. So in Christ, we're dead to sin, but alive to him. As verse 15 says, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. 
I believe this is the perfect starting point for everything that follows, both in this passage and for the years ahead for this church. It places us firmly under the protection, the provision, and the lordship of Jesus Christ. It leaves us no excuses for a selfish lifestyle. It leaves no motivation for sin. It focuses us entirely on what Jesus is doing, not what the people around us are doing. On the spiritual realm, not the earthly one. In fact, I think if we really saw ourselves, as St. Paul did, as a new creation, nothing like the old one, it would completely revolutionize the way we live. Elsewhere in this letter, Paul suggests the kind of people this new creation worldview will make us into. We will be ministers of a new covenant, not the letter of the law, but of the Spirit. Chapter 3, verse 6. We will be hemmed in and our lives be steered by the love of Christ. Chapter 5, verse 14. We will know ourselves to be willingly promised in marriage to Jesus and live like it. Chapter 11, verse 1. We will recognize and reject false teaching that doesn't result in good for us and for others. Chapter 11, verses 3 to 15. In effect, not only does this mean that we'll be non-judgmental people, which means a life free from bitterness, we'll also be consciously directed by the love of Jesus for us, motivated by our love for him, and safe from many influences that mean us harm. That's how life in Christ is, an entirely new creation. So part two, the ministry of reconciliation, verses 18 to 20. There's a vital theological point even in the first five words of verse 18. All this is from God. Now I say this is important because some presentations of the Christian faith give the impression that God is wrathful and angry and vengeful and Jesus is merciful, as it were, rescuing us from an angry God. Well, nothing could be further from the truth. It is God himself who in his perfect love and mercy chooses to reconcile us to himself through Christ. Our death and new life in Jesus means that we now live for him. And our reconciliation with God necessarily involves us in God's purposes in the world. His plan to reconcile the whole world to himself. Verse 19 then puts the same idea the other way around. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Here again is that idea I just pointed out that comes in chapter 3 of this letter, the idea of the new covenant, which is not to do with the letter of the law, but with the spirit of God himself. The point is God didn't allow people's sins to be the end of the story, as the letter of the law demanded. Instead, he decreed a new covenant, offering forgiveness and eternal life to all who would accept Christ and learn to run towards his mercy seat, as we we're reading in Hebrews, rather than away from it. The message that we carry on God's behalf is therefore not one of condemnation, but one of reconciliation. Verse 20, therefore we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. And this image of us as ambassadors 
It always reminds me. I can't say the word without being reminded of my son-in-law. Do you remember the um, the advertisements for Ferraro Rocher? Ambassador, you're spoiling us. Do you remember that? Well, Lucas sort of condensed that whole thing down. When when somebody cooks something particularly nice for him, he just says, "Ambassador." <laughs> so we're all ambassadors. We're ambassadors for Christ. And the idea of ambassadors is a rich one. In the first place, an ambassador. Sorry, I've ruined the whole thing now, haven't I? Is by definition one who works for his own country whilst living in another land. As part of God's new creation, whatever our nationality, our tribe, our ethnicity, we're now primarily citizens of the kingdom of heaven, operating in a foreign land, representing the interests of heaven here on earth. Secondly, an ambassador has no power in her own right. She wields influence only because of the respect in which the nation she comes from uh, is held. Thirdly, an ambassador has to take responsibility for the actions of his government, whether the locals like it or not, and whether he personally likes it or not. There's little room for personal opinion. Fourthly, she is first and foremost a diplomat, always trying to make her government's position acceptable to those she addresses. Elsewhere in this wonderful letter, the same idea of representing Jesus to the world we live in is presented in several different ways. In chapter 2, verse 15, we are told that we are the aroma of Christ in the world. Incredibly pleasant and attractive to those who are being saved, but sadly, utterly repugnant to those who are perishing. John Wimber used to tell the story of how he was once in um, an almost empty departure lounge in an airport. And there were just a couple of other people there. One woman in particular was sitting right over the other side. And as he sat reading his Bible and praying, uh, she gradually moved closer and closer to him until she was sitting in the very next seat, so close she was actually touching him, which was absurd in the empty lounge. And he just quickly looked around and said, feels good, doesn't it? And she said, yes, what is that? Presence of God. And I don't know the end of the story, but I I understand that a wonderful conversation about faith took place between the two of them. In our own church, just a few months ago, a passerby, you know who you are, was mysteriously attracted by a bunch of you guys just hanging around chattering outside the door after a Sunday service. And that person joined the church the very next week and has been with us ever since. Feels good, doesn't it? That is the aroma of Christ. Chapter 3, verse 3, describes us as a letter from Christ written with the Spirit of God on human hearts. Chapter 4, 6 and 7 remind us that, as Jesus put it, we're the light of the world, but we hold this treasure in earthen vessels. We contain, in our physical bodies, the very radiance of heaven. Chapter 6, 16 calls us the dwelling place of God. Now, all of these are are merely passive elements of our role as ambassadors. They're they're, they're not things we have to do. They're just things we are. If we're in Christ, if we're practicing the presence of God, then we simply can't help being his aroma, his light, his obvious dwelling place on the earth. That's the passive. On the active side, chapter 511, knowing the fear of the Lord ourselves, we persuade others. Chapter 10, verse 5, we destroy arguments and lofty opinions raised up against God. 
chapter 10, 11, we practice what we preach. Now, it seems to me that those passive elements, the aroma, the light, the dwelling place of God, are what draws people in the first place. And the active ones are how we respond when they start asking their questions. The second part isn't that difficult once you've done the first. We are not all called to be evangelists, though I'm sure that some of you are. But we are called to be witnesses. As Jesus himself puts it in John 3.11, we speak of what we know. We bear witness to what we have seen. Reckon anyone can do that. So this whole ministry of reconciliation that's been entrusted to us, life-changing as it undoubtedly is, is not hard to carry out. Part three, the process of reconciliation, the inward part, verses 20b to 3 verse 1. What we just read, taken alone, might give the impression that reconciliation with God is a one-off, something that we lead people through who don't yet know Jesus at all. And some presentations of the Christian gospel have been guilty of confirming that impression. Seal the deal. Pray the prayer. Get saved. And indeed, that first step is vitally important. And in a few minutes, I'm going to invite you to take it, if you've never done so before. But essential as it is, it is only the first step. As Todd Hunter memorably put it, it's the starter's pistol, not the finish line in the race. And this next section makes it quite plain that, in fact, reconciliation to God is an ongoing process in all of our lives, not just a one-off event. Paul is writing, as he says in the very first verse in the letter, to Christians. But here he is imploring them to be reconciled to God. And of course, it's also part of the ambassador's role to take care of her own nationals in the country she's been sent to. Our ministry of reconciliation extends not just to unbelievers, but to everyone in the church as well. So does the way we interact with others help them to get closer to God? Or does the way we behave actually make it harder for them? Remember the Lord's Prayer, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. In this letter, Paul is writing to a church with quite a few problems, a church apparently that has all but fallen out with him himself. But he's convinced that if everybody strives for reconciliation with God, then they will also be reconciled to each other and to himself as a perfectly natural consequence. Because if everyone's reconciled to God, they're necessarily reconciled to each other. When relationships fall apart, our first aim should always be to get ourselves right with God. And the rest will follow as night follows day. And verse 21 repeats that message that we referred to in verses 14 and 15 about our status as a new creation and our motivation as reconciled reconcilers. When the sinless Jesus took all our sins upon him, died, rose again, and ascended to heaven for us, he did so in order that we might become the very righteousness of God visible to all. And as we get better at running to his throne of grace rather than away from it, Hebrews 4.16, for forgiveness and for help, as we get quicker to repent and slower to go our own way, 
as we get closer to him and more like him, that's exactly what happens. The call of God to our hearts in the old vineyard phrase is, come as you are, but don't stay as you are. Chapter 3, verse 1 is open to a degree of interpretation. Some would say that receiving the grace of God in vain is a stark warning that we might lose our salvation if we're not very careful. Others would contend that it it merely refers to the, the wasted opportunity. If having received all this free and full forgiveness, we then fail to live in the good of it and communicate it to others. That question of whether a Christian can lose his salvation is one you can argue quite convincingly either way from Scripture. And many people do. But it seems to me that the ambiguities in the Bible are often there for a reason. Personally, I think there's there's room for both interpretations, used at different times in different situations um, to help people. But overall, to quote Gerald Coates, The best answer to the question is, who wants to know? Are we really interested in doing the bare minimum to retain our salvation? Is our faith something we want to reduce to the lowest common denominator? Or are we all about what Oswald Chambers called my utmost for his highest? So whichever interpretation we prefer, it makes no difference. We certainly don't want to receive God's grace in vain. And just before we move on, let's also notice the start of the verse, working together with him. As we exercise the ministry of reconciliation in the lives of others, and also as we engage in the process of reconciliation in our own lives, we find that God is already there and working. He was surely involved in the work before we ever started. He surely works alongside us as we join him. And I bet he continues long after we think the job's done. In this work, we're only joining our own feeble efforts to what God is already doing. Remember verse 18? This is his plan from start to finish. And once again, the rest of this wonderful letter also speaks profoundly and often to this subject of the process of reconciliation in the lives of the believers. Chapter 2, 5 to 11, stress the importance of forgiving one another. Chapter 3.18 says we are being changed from one degree of glory into another. Chapter 6.14-18 to 18, commands us to separate ourselves from any entanglement with worldly values. Chapter 7 verse 1 enjoins us to cleanse ourselves from every defilement. And chapter 7 verse 2 tells us we have to make room in our hearts, literally expand our hearts towards those who have hurt us. Then the whole of chapter 8 is an instruction on how we should excel in generosity. Chapter 10, 15 and 16 points out that as our faith increases, so our influence grows through the missionaries we send out. And by the way, it's another sign of our bigger boat as a church that this year for the first time, we're actively sending out Kirsty Parrott as a missionary to Turkey, as well as uh, Andrew and Valerie uh, and their continuing work in Ethiopia. Then again, chapter 13, verse 5, encourages us to examine ourselves and make sure that we are in the faith. And chapter 13, 11, at the, right at the end of the book, exhorts us to be perfected, be comforted, be of the same mind, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. 
So all those verses taken together indicate what getting fully reconciled to God is really all about. And it would be a foolhardy Christian who claimed to have this all down, dusted and, uh, down, done and dusted. We have this ministry of reconciliation to the wider world and to each other, but it's equally important to work the process of reconciliation constantly in our own lives. Well, I began this talk by saying there was no single unifying theme in 2 Corinthians, and I confess it begins to look as if we might have found one after all. But that's just on today's reading. Another day, the living and active word of God may present itself to us in another way altogether. So we're nearly done. There's the new creation, the ministry and process of reconciliation, and we finish part four with a now salvation. Verse two, for he says, in a favorable time, I listened to you. And in a day of salvation, I helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. For those of us who were here for Dr. Moffat's striking introduction to Hebrews last semester, this too will be a very familiar concept. Today is the day of God's favor. Today is the time to act. Today is the best and easiest time to be reconciled to God. Tomorrow the opportunity may have passed. So as we come to our ministry time, I think we should really all come forward for prayer. Because there's not one of us who doesn't need to be reconciled to God in some way. Not one of us who doesn't need more and better connections with God. So if it is the very first time you've become aware of your need for forgiveness, then God really wants to get close to you today. Today is the day. So please come forward with the others. But even if you've been a Christian for years, whatever your situation, today's the day for you too. And if the Lord's been speaking to you, as I've spoken, about getting more involved in helping others to make connections with God, then today's the day for you too. Of course, we'd also like to pray for, uh, pray for those of us who are sick or injured in body, mind, spirit, soul, whatever. But we'll do that second. First of all, I'd just like to pray for this ministry of reconciliation in our lives and in the world. Why don't you stand and I'll pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for everything that you've done for us. We thank you that in your death you took away ours, that you removed the penalty and power of sin from our lives and made us a new creation. We commit ourselves to the ministry of reconciliation, reconciling the world to you as ambassadors for you. We commit ourselves to being fully reconciled to God. As you point things out in our lives that need fixing, we determine that we will fix them. We resolve that we will be people who do that. And we thank you for your now salvation, that today really is the day to come and get right with you. So we invite you to come by your Holy Spirit 
and move among us now to prompt our hearts. That we'll be people who open our hearts to each other and to you. So come, Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit. And I pray that as we as we reach out a hand and, and pray for each other in the ministry time, you will impart gifts of your spirit. That you'll impart cleansing and healing, restoration. And that you come and fill us. In Jesus' name, amen.